0: I wondered sometimes about the fine line that separated safety from danger in Tijuana. As I settled deeper into the city, I began to consider how even ordinary lives could be upended in an instant. Maybe it was just a small step, a chance conversation, accepting a ride with the wrong person, standing under El Arbol on the wrong day, and then, at some point, stepping away from all that you have known. Perhaps at first, not even understanding the magnitude of what you've done. Is that what happened to the Odoyan brothers?
1: First, Alex goes missing. And two weeks later, Alfredo gets
0: detained. So it was like a... It was a rude awakening. I'm Sandra Dibble, and this is Episode 3 of Border City, a new podcast from the San Diego Union-Tribune. It's about a city known for violence, drugs, and migration into the United States. But it's also a city where I, like so many others, have found a place and a purpose. A city of exuberance and hope. I'd only intended to stay in Tijuana a couple of years. But more than two years later, I was still here. By the end of 1996, Alfredo Odoyan, Adriana's youngest brother, was in custody in San Diego. He was fighting Mexico's attempt to extradite him for the murder of Ernesto Ibarra Santez. That's the federal police commander who was shot to death soon after he talked publicly about the Arellanos. Adriana's oldest brother, Alex, was still being held illegally by the Mexican military. He hadn't been charged with a crime, but the army suspected him of working for the Arellanos. Alex was 35 years old by then, and the father of two young daughters. Fearing for his life, he talked about the Arianos. A video of one of his interrogations was leaked to a Mexico City news magazine. Killing for them is a party, Alex reportedly said in the tape. It's a distraction. There's no remorse, nothing. They laugh after an assassination, then go eat lobster and Rosarito. In February 1997, Alex was turned over to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. The DEA flew Alex to San Diego and took him to a hotel. The U.S. also wanted information about the Arellanos, and they wanted Alex to testify against his brother. They warned him not to return to Mexico. They'd heard the Arellanos wanted him dead. But one night, Alex slipped away from the hotel and went home to Tijuana. His sister, Adriana, remembers the night he came back.
1: He started knocking on our door at 4 o'clock in the morning, and he was a mess. He said that he had to leave because they wanted him to talk about
0: Alfredo, testify against Alfredo, and he wouldn't do it. His mother, Cristina Palacios de Odoyan took him to a hiding place for a few days.
1: He started getting comfortable, I guess. So he started making phone calls,
0: and both well, the phones were rigged. One night, Adriana arrived home from school and saw Alex in the front room with her parents and some other relatives. They were drinking and in high spirits. But Adriana was alarmed.
1: And I look in the street and there's a weird car right there and there's another weird, just weird cars around the street. So I walk into the house and they're all happy because Alex is home. And I said, no, Alex is not home. Alex is home now, but he won't be home tomorrow because there's people out there that want to take him. And my dad says, no, you know, you're you're so used to having all the attention that you can't stand him having the attention. And I said, just, you know, I, I really hope that's the case.
0: Later that night, Adriana finally convinced her family that Alex was in danger and that he needed to return to the U.S. The next day, she watched her mother and Alex get ready to leave the house.
1: I saw this car started pulling out and I said, Alex, you guys are being followed. Mom, you're not gonna make it. Let me worry about it and let me see. I'll call friends and I don't know. I'll... And he says, no, you're ridiculous.
0: A few minutes later, Alex and his mom turned into a parking lot off of Agua Caliente Boulevard. It's one of Tijuana's busiest streets. A blue van pulled up and four men dragged Alex inside. His mother tried to hold on to him, but she was tiny and helpless against the four men. The van sped away with Alex inside. They took him, and they took him right in front of my mom, and, well, we never saw Alex again. Cristina identified one of the assailants as Ignacio Weber, a high-ranking federal intelligence official. She picked him out of a photo lineup at the federal attorney general's office. The kidnapping of my son was real and traumatic, Cristina wrote in a letter to the newspaper Reforma. Senor Weber personally threw me to the ground. I had him less than 30 centimeters from my face. I will never forget his face. Adriana says her mother was determined to find Alex, no matter what the cost.
1: There were like five or six kids that were in the same situation as us, but... Their parents wouldn't even speak of them. They're like, it, this, if I don't speak of it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't, it's not there. My mom said, screw this. You know, I'm going to look for my son. If I lose all my friends, whatever. So she, she left the champagne and the cards and her heels and she got some sneakers and her jeans and she became an activist and she lost all her friends. It became our mission, hers and mine. But my mom was way stronger than I. She never stopped. She, my mom, would always say, "Soy Cristina Palacios," and she would always get her way. She always got her way. She was very strong.
0: At one point, the Odoyans and some other families turned to Victor Clark for help. He's a Tijuana human rights activist who speaks up for victims of corruption and injustice. Clark held a news conference and mentioned the Odoyans and Alex's abduction. But then he and his assistant became targets themselves.
1: I remember the last phone call that I received, the man told me, don't, touch or don't talk anymore in public or about Orellano family because we are going to kill you.
0: Clark had received death threats before. He and his family were already being protected by a half dozen city cops.
1: If I go to the market, they come with me. If I cross to the U.S. side, they wait for me when I return. And they escort my, my daughter to school and my wife. None of my friends wants to go to have dinner. Everybody told me, no, they are going to kill you. You are in great danger.
0: But this new threat was different. It was very specific. And while Clark was brave, he wasn't reckless.
1: So I had to tell Ms. Otoian and the rest of the family that we cannot support them anymore because we are under a lot of pressure because we were receiving that threats.
0: The story of the Odoyans made headlines on both sides of the border. It reinforced the idea that Tijuana was a dangerous place. But I lived just uphill from the Odoyans, and I wasn't changing my daily habits. Every evening after work, I met a friend for a walk through our neighborhood. The streets were often dark, but we felt safe. My friend's name is Nancy Leroy. She was a U.S. diplomat assigned to the consulate in Tijuana. She lived a few houses down from me on the edge of a golf course. Nancy understood my world. She'd lived in several countries. She even owned a house in the same Washington, D.C. neighborhood where I grew up. We exchanged stories of our lives on the move as we walked with Nellie, her gentle mutt, from the Tijuana Pound. We passed dogs barking and tugging at their chains behind heavily gated houses. I told her about my job, my friends, my family, and my conflicted feelings about staying in Tijuana and one day she said something that still sticks with me. Wherever you go, there you are. And it was like a light bulb went off. I could move away from Washington, D.C., but I couldn't move away from myself. In the end, wasn't it simply my own limitations I was running from? In 1997, I decided to invite my Tijuana friends over for Thanksgiving dinner. It's an American holiday, but people on the border often celebrate it too. I hadn't even put the turkey in the oven when my reporter friend, Dora Elena Cortes, called with news that upended our plans. Tonight, a veteran journalist is fighting for his life. The journalist was gunned down yesterday morning in an upscale Tijuana neighborhood. Jesus Blancornelas was shot at 9.30 that morning, just a couple of miles from my apartment. He was ambushed on his way to work.
1: The journalist's reputation for exposing corruption may have been the motive for the shooting.
0: La Cornelas was something of a legend in Tijuana and throughout Mexico. He'd founded the weekly newspaper Zeta in 1980. It was the first publication that dared to name the leaders of the Arellano cartel. Adela Navarro was a young staff member at Zeta. She got to the scene of the shooting just as paramedics were pulling her boss from his red Ford Explorer.
2: Blancornelas Blancornelas wasn't shouting, but he was crying out in pain. He was conscious and was telling us he was in pain from his wounds. It was a miracle that he could call out that he was even alive. It would have been worse for us if he hadn't been wearing a black sweater. Because of the black sweater, we couldn't see the blood.
0: I'd met Blancornelas a few times, and we were cordial but not close. He was an intense man in his 50s with a salt-and-pepper beard and wire-framed glasses. His weekly column in that was a must-read for anyone trying to make sense of what was going on in Tijuana's underworld.
2: It wasn't Blancornela's goal to be a journalist to investigate in drug traffickers. However, he became a national reference point. In the coverage of drug trafficking, there is a before and after Jesus Blancornela's. He was the one who named them. He said, this is the Arellano cartel, and this is how it's structured, and they work with these police officers, and they're committing acts of corruption.
0: Blancornelas' audacity exposed CETA's small staff to an enemy so powerful that even they didn't foresee the consequences.
2: He received threats by email, by phone but they weren't delivered face-to-face nor from any one specific person who
0: signed them or took
2: responsibility, nothing that he considered serious.
0: The state had assigned two agents to guard him, but Zeta's staff didn't trust them. They persuaded Blancornelas to also hire a private bodyguard. Two weeks before the attack, the state agents stopped showing up, but they tipped off his bodyguard to be careful that something was going to happen to Blancornelas. And then something did. The bodyguard, Luis Valero Elizalde, was driving the SUV that Thanksgiving day. He was shot to death as he used his own body to shield his boss. One of the assassins died too, killed by a ricochet bullet fired by one of his own men.
2: The scene is really shocking, to see the assassin dead, still holding his weapon. The other weapon was tucked behind him into the waist of his pants, and it was the one he was supposedly going to use to finish him off.
0: One of the CETA editors was so distraught that he charged at the assassin's corpse.
2: He wanted to strike the body of the killer. Some police officers had to come and hold him back.
0: The dead gunman was a high-ranking hitman for the Arellano Cartel. He'd grown up in San Diego. By the time I got to the scene, the bodies were gone. All I saw was yellow police tape. So I drove to a nearby hospital and joined a crowd of journalists waiting for word of Blancornelas' condition. After the shooting, Adela rode with Blancornelas in the ambulance. Because it was a Thursday, that's Seta's deadline day, the rest of the staff focused on putting out Friday's edition. As her boss went into surgery, Adela returned to work.
2: I remember the staff in mourning, morning, seeing people crying while they were writing. Obviously, there was a lot of pain, but nobody stopped working. I remember it was about 1 a.m. when we were done, finally sitting down, and finally giving myself the opportunity to cry a little bit.
0: The bullet struck Blancornelas in his right lung, liver, and spinal cord. When he left the hospital 20 days later, he was leaning on a walker. Journalism in Mexico was becoming increasingly dangerous, and the attack on Jesus Blancornelas was just a taste of what was to come.
2: Meanwhile, the bloodshed remains on the minds of Tijuana journalists. His uncovering corruption is becoming increasingly dangerous, not just here, but all over Latin America.
0: Violence wasn't the only way to silence the press, just the most extreme. I soon became aware of more subtle and pervasive ways of influencing news coverage. My journalist friends often worked for media organizations that relied on government payments to stay afloat. It was, and still is, called official publicity. Some journalists got paid not to tell stories, or they self-censored what they wrote to protect themselves or they grew far too close to the officials they covered. They were underpaid, understaffed, under constant stress to produce copy, sometimes five stories a day. But being part of the Tijuana Press Corps could also be a lot of fun. Journalists were my constant companions. I'd run into them at City Hall, at crime scenes, over coffee at Big Boy's Restaurant we squeezed together into the tiny sound booth at Radio Enciso for Dora Elena's daily radio program. Some even invited me to their homes for barbecues or carne asadas. If a government official was reluctant to talk, we became a human barricade. We blocked them with our bodies, brandishing cameras and tape recorders. If I was too far back to hear one of my better-positioned compañeros would carry my recorder to the front. They greeted me as one of their own, buenos dias, compañera. But I was always aware of the vast differences in our working conditions. I got paid a U.S. salary. I had more time to report stories. My bosses weren't beholden to Mexican government officials, and we weren't being targeted by drug traffickers. As I settled in, I worked hard to build a life outside of journalism. I took tennis lessons at Tijuana's only public courts. Before work, I went to an aerobics class at a cultural center. After work, I headed to an ecology class at a private Jesuit university. I also went to concerts in small independent art spaces across the city. Sometimes, no more than a half dozen people showed up to listen. I felt I wasn't just a spectator. I sat so close I could almost touch the musicians. One summer night, I heard 41 tenors perform opera arias at a gated community perched on a hill above downtown. The melodies soared through the open windows of the clubhouse into the warm night air. It was a fundraiser for Armando Pesqueira. He was one of the first musicians I met when I came here. He was 30 years old and had a master's degree in music performance from San Diego State University. Now, he was headed to the San Francisco Conservatory to study conducting. Armando was part of a generation of ambitious Tijuanenses. They were paving their own paths, paths that routinely zigzagged into the United States. It was on a trip to a San Diego grocery store with his mother that Armando got his first classical album. He was very young, six or seven years old. They used to sell classical music series, like each week a new
1: LP uh, with a a different composer used to come, uh, and you can buy it.
0: In those days, Armando says crossing the border felt like driving across town. He saw San Diego and Tijuana as a single community.
1: I feel I'm not just a Tijuana citizen. I'm just, I'm a binational citizen of San Diego, Tijuana, and just the whole area. Of course, there's a border, and of course, you have to, you know, cross a line, but I never felt growing up, growing up there. there was a, a psychological barrier between my own personal psyche, or how do you say it? The way I, the way I see myself has always been somebody from Tijuana and San Diego.
0: Today, Armando leads the Baja California Orchestra. He's its first Tijuana-born conductor. I was enthralled and inspired by the stubbornness I saw in these musicians, their determination to pursue their art, even when their audiences were small and resources scarce. I told myself that if they could persist in their dreams... Then I could too, no matter how odd and out of place I sometimes felt here. Growing up, I never liked my own birthday parties. But do you want to change that? I can't remember the year, but I can't forget the moment. I was turning 40 something. And Angela, she's the woman who cleaned my house and made me a part of her family, threw me a party. A surprise party. I heard the muffled voices as I walked towards her house, and I spotted a red balloon through the window. When I stepped inside, everyone was smiling. Feliz cumpleaños, they shouted. Angela was now living in Mariano Matamoros. It was an eastern Tijuana shanty town with higher aspirations than her old neighborhood. Cement floor was swept. The toys were put away. The pozole bubbled in a giant pot. On the table, there was a large white cake with my name spelled out. There was nothing Angela loved more than a celebration. Every party at her house was a royal event, no matter who turned up. Angelita graduated from junior high school, and suddenly the house was filled with teenage girls in knee socks and plaid skirts. My namesake, little Sandrita, turned one and sat propped up on a couch while her cousins played in every corner of the house. When Angela turned 43, the celebration overflowed into the unpaved street. Everyone took wax at the homemade piñata made of eggshells until the candy came flying out. Parties here seemed like acts of defiance, born of a determination to celebrate what's at hand rather than mourn what's missing. They reflected a faith that life, for all the heartache, is worth the fight. Angela's daughter, Griselda, took the lesson to heart. I got that from my mother. I love to spend time with neighbors, to prepare
1: meals, to decorate, for everything to be beautiful. I love to have flowers, like my mother. A party represents love.
0: If there was one thing I had learned from Angela, it was to celebrate the moment. To leave behind stresses and family differences. And so in August 1998, I had a chance to do just that. My mother's 75th birthday party. I flew home for the celebration. Landing in Washington, I took everything in. The Pentagon, the Potomac River, the Washington Monument. I saw trees and foliage everywhere. Scenery so different from the dry brown hills of the border. Unlike Angela's family, my brothers and I weren't used to organizing family get-togethers but we joined forces to surprise our mother on this special day. We invited old family friends to gather with us on the back patio of my brother Philo's house in McLean, Virginia. He lived there with his three daughters and his wife, Liz, who was also a foreign service officer. It was a humid summer afternoon and we were stressed. My younger brother, Charles, who lived nearby in Washington, D.C., had done all the cooking. And somehow, he'd locked himself out of his apartment with all the food left inside. But then my mother arrived in a blue dress, smiling and holding hands with one of her granddaughters, so happy to be surrounded with people who knew her and loved her. In the end, nobody cared that the food was a little late. After four years in Tijuana, I was beginning to long for some sort of boundary between my personal and work lives. I was still the only Union Tribune reporter who lived in Tijuana, so I was usually the one to run to crime scenes, especially if the crimes were on weekends or in the middle of the night. Even when I wasn't working, I saw stories everywhere I turned, heard news tips in every conversation. I drove to eastern Tijuana for a party and noticed a new housing development. Should I write about that? At my favorite taco stand, I ran into an engineer from the Water Commission who'd been avoiding my calls. Should I stop and interview him there with a tortilla in my hand? I needed some distance from my work. I went home to Washington every chance I got. I stayed with my mother, saw my brothers, called old friends, visited my hairdresser, took walks along the Potomac River, and dropped in at my favorite bookstore. When I went back to Tijuana... I was so busy most days that I didn't have time to ruminate about my life. But at night, alone in my apartment, I'd watch the city lights down below and I'd wonder about my life there. That feeling that I was only passing through still hadn't left me. I imagined moving back to Washington, D.C., but didn't. I'd taken a leap, and there was no leaping back into the life I left behind. One night, I wrote in my diary. I've lit two candles and I feel better. Dogs are barking, cars are rolling up my street. Lights outside shimmer. I'm lonely, but writing makes me feel less so, as though I'm keeping myself company. Next episode, my bike ride with Paco across the border is interrupted.
1: Tijuana's chief of police made his last visit to headquarters in a casket.
0: Border City was reported, written, and created by me, Sandra Dibble. Susan White was my editor and co-creator. Our associate producers were Elise Anoush Manoukian and Hafsa Fatima. Kurt Conan and AMFM Music provided original music and sound design, and Joanne Farian and Garage Media provided production support. Our theme song, Tierra Mestiza, was composed by Gerardo Tames and performed by Mexico City-based Los Folcloristas. Armando Pesquera and singer José Luis Ordóñez performed Voray Morire, by Francesco Paolo Tosti, or thanks to Patricia Fernandez de Castro, who read The Voice of Adela Navarro, and to Edith Fuentes, who read The Voice of Griselda.